don't mention the reptiles. Don't mention the reptiles, two. yeah. Because there, there were people, when this started to come in, people who, who were kind of into my stuff, uh, up to that point, which was kind of regular fight, well, it's a bit strange because it was all the way the war was manipulated by a few people, but it was all kind of regular stuff. Um, and then I, I came across with this stuff, and it was Get like, it out of the way. Don't mention the reptiles. They'll just laugh at you again. I said, I know, but I've seen enough and heard enough to believe that it's real, and so I say it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fifth instalment of this Reading David Icke series. In this episode, I'll be looking at the revelations from David's 11th book, The Biggest Secret, the book that will change the world, and what revelations they are. Whether The Biggest Secret changed the world or not, it certainly changed David's, as this is the book where the idea he would become most associated with burst onto the scene, that the world is run by shape-shifting reptiles. To my mind, this is where David crosses the Rubicon, I'm not sure he'd said anything up until this point which would permanently exclude him from even impolite society. In an alternative universe, perhaps there's a David Icke who took a different path and became a more centrist and erudite critic of empire through the noughties. He'd already reined in the excesses of his son-of-God spiritualism, and with his obvious talents as a writer and speaker, well, who knows where that path could have led. Back in this universe, however, once you've accused the Queen's mum of being a giant lizard creature who sacrifices children, there's really no coming back from that. You are permanently relegated to the fringes of the fringe. No matter what entirely sensible point you make, this will always be hurled against you. The thing is, this is the point. The mainstream media has accepted that those characters, those same characters, lied about Iraq but will not question in any way the same people's version of 9-11. They're journalists, it's their job. But do you still think the royal family were shape-shifting lizards? Yes, I do. You do? Yes. And you also want us to believe 9-11 is a conspiracy? Uh, yes, but the Doesn't point... Doesn't that, that rather undermine... I mean, well, no, it I doesn't. can see the point that you might have some uh, question 9-11, but if you also think... That Buckingham Palace is inhabited by lizards. It kind uh, of undermines. But it's not it. that. It's not that simple. I've previously explored how the idea of shape-shifting reptilians can be employed metaphorically or mythically to highlight the insanity and psychopathy of the ruling class. There is no doubt, either, that David means it entirely literally. Understanding how he got there is the great challenge this series has been leading up to. I think it's best to start with a recap. Just a few years prior to this, David Icke had been a fairly conventional fellow who presented sports for the BBC. An interest in environmentalism led him into a more spiritual worldview, where he reported having experiences that convinced him of the reality of a spirit world. Whilst David might have held this belief rather intensely, it's one he more or less shares with the majority of people in the world. They just don't all go on the Terry Wogan show to talk about it. David then became increasingly drawn into a conspiratorial worldview. I completely embrace many of the reasons he went there, from the imperialistic nature of our supposedly humanitarian wars, to the CIA's overthrowing of governments that step out of line, to the global financial system ensnaring nations into debt. There are many good reasons to adopt a deeply cynical attitude towards our supposedly benign institutions. I would further suggest that David asks all the most pertinent questions about that deeper level of the Anglo-American establishment, its role in such events as the world wars and the Russian revolution, 
and the drive for global hegemony that is at least 120 years old. On the critical side, I propose that David lacks discernment and that he tends to embrace everything which confirms a conspiratorial worldview. In episode 3 on the Robots Rebellion, I sought to demonstrate how satire, propaganda and blatant forgeries get uncritically thrown into the pot of his conspiratorial soup. David also investigated the CIA's mind control program MKUltra, a very real and utterly monstrous thing that involved running torturous experiments on American citizens. He became strongly influenced by people, Kathy O'Brien in particular, who claimed to have been victims of this program based on memories they recovered using hypnotic-like techniques. The details they would recall were often so lurid as to defy imagination, involving graphic sexual assaults by some of the world's most famous politicians. The centrality of these claims to both David Icke's worldview, and a conspiratorial worldview in general, is so substantial, I felt the need to produce a couple of spin-off episodes exploring memory. I had to conclude that there are massive problems with using hypnosis to recover memories. There seems to be almost no evidence that it works, whilst there's plenty of evidence that in some people, it can cause a conflation of fantasy and reality. I must emphasise that I was certainly not inclined to this position from the outset. In fact, I had to be dragged to it kicking and screaming. Substantial conflation of fantasy and memory just doesn't seem likely to me. I can then certainly understand why David Icke adopts the opposite point of view. That false memory syndrome is nothing more than a scam to cover up abuse at the highest levels of power. I just want to emphasise that his acceptance of recovered memories as being broadly accurate moves him into a fundamentally different reality from the one most of us occupy. And so we come to 1999 and The Biggest Secret. At over 500 pages, I think this is David's biggest book so far, covering history going back to Babylon, the financial system, the role of science and religion as forms of control, and devoting considerable space to the death of Princess Diana. Spoiler alert, David thinks she was murdered. I'm sure I could spend the next year podcasting on the contents of this book alone, something I have absolutely no intention of doing. Instead, I'm going to focus on the question we all want answered. What about the reptiles? Where do they come from? Well, the lower fourth dimension, apparently. But I mean, where does the idea of them come from? I'll focus on the aspects of the book most pertinent to that. The book's introduction is titled Days of Decision, and in the opening paragraph, David announces that We are on the cusp of an incredible global change, a crossroads where we will make decisions which will influence life on Earth well into the future of what we call time. We can fling open the mental and emotional prisons which have controlled the human race for thousands of years, or we can allow agents of that control to complete their agenda for the mental, emotional, spiritual and physical enslavement of every man, woman and child on the planet, with a world government, army, central bank and currency, underpinned by a microchipped population. David proceeds to explain that global institutions like the United Nations, European Union and World Bank are merging with the banking and business sectors to create this global government. He then states that Behind this constant and coordinated centralization is a tribe of interbreeding bloodlines which could be traced to the ancient Middle and Near East, They emerged from there to become the royalty, aristocracy, and priesthood of Europe before expanding their power across the world, largely through the great British Empire, great as in quotation marks, 
This allowed the tribe to export its bloodlines to all the countries the British and European powers occupied, including the United States, where they continue to run the show to this day. This idea of consistent bloodlines running the world for thousands of years is central to David's case. He cites genealogical facts such as 33 of the then 40 US presidents being related to King Alfred the Great and Charlemagne. I'm not sure if this is evidence of a coordinated conspiracy, or it just speaks to the fact that elite groups tend to be preserved over time, or absolutely nothing at all, and that a good number of us have some aristocratic connection in our lineage somewhere. I'd be happy to be educated on this if anyone knows the answer. One element that is absolutely central to David's thinking at this time is that the year 2012 will herald some great spiritual awakening, brought about by changes in the sun. By that I mean the gas giant at the centre of the solar system, not Rupert Murdoch's newspaper. He thinks that it's essential for the Babylonian Brotherhood, as he calls the conspirators, to have their plans for a microchipped enslaved population enacted prior to that point. We really are then living in the days of decision, the final decade of a drama that's been playing out for thousands of years. The way David writes about it, this transformation is not something you could miss. He quotes psychonautic explorers Terence and Dennis McKenna as saying, In a period of 384 days, mostly during 2012, there will be more transformations of consciousness than in all the previous cycles of the last hundred years put together. After this, there will be a six-day cycle in which events will move even faster, and in the last 135 minutes, there will be 18 further enormous leaps in human consciousness accumulating in the last point zero zero seven five of a second, where another 13 will occur. David comments on this that, I don't think we'll be watching The Price is Right while this is happening somehow. It's clear he thought this was going to be a tangible, transformational experience for a large percentage of humanity, and not something you were going to be able to miss. To counteract this, David informs the reader that the Babylonian Brotherhood planned to create enormous fear perhaps through starting a third world war between the West and either the Muslim world or China. They may also use holographic technology to project images into the sky of UFOs or religious figures to further spark conflict. They will also induce a global financial crash to introduce the one world electronic currency and to employ terrorism to terrify and dispirit the human population into unquestioning servitude. A lot of this sort of happened. It's undeniable there has been a substantial global awakening to spiritual and temporal realities, as David would define them. It's also the case that states have attempted, successfully, to control their populations through fear of terrorism and viruses and to enact greater centralization through manufactured financial crises. It's also abundantly clear that neither of these conflicting forces arose in anything like the manner or scale David Icke predicted. Neither was there any great centrality on the year 2012. The awakening owes more to the rise of the internet than anything to do with sunspot activity, a fact that would have been predictable 25 years ago if you were sharp enough to see it. As the great year grew closer, David revised his position. What's brilliant now is that this uh, control system is losing control it may seem to be getting more control with more legislation and more police uh, imposition and militarization of the police and more data, more surveillance. 
Yeah. In the play-out world, it seems to have more control. What it's losing control of is the fundamental foundation of its control, and that is the sense of human perception that we are what they tell us we are instead of understanding what we really are. And the more that happens, the more control, the control system as it plays out in all those things will fall. Because it is going down. It's going to go forward for a few years yet. Let, no, I don't have any illusions about that. How long, David? <laughs> My view is, and I think 2012 is a diversion, personally, mm -hmm. and I think you're going to see that exploited by Hollywood movies and other we things. see it already. Yeah. Well, my, my feelings around 2016, life in this reality is going to transform. It seems to me David has a model of the world which is broadly correct, but gets a lot of the details wrong. And therefore his predictions of the future are broadly correct in terms of the direction the world will take, but always completely wrong in terms of scale. Moving on, chapter one is titled, The Martians Have Landed? Question mark. Here David makes the case that the bloodlines that have been running the world for thousands of years are in some way interbred with extraterrestrials. In support of an alien presence on this planet, he cites the, I think very real mystery, of ancient cultures moving gazillion ton stones around and building things like the pyramids. David is also influenced by the UFO phenomenon and accounts of encounters or abductions, which are again heavily reliant on recovered memories. He is particularly influenced by the writing of Zechariah Stitchin. Stitchin was a journalist who taught himself the ancient Sumerian language and proceeded to translate ancient clay tablets in a rather unique way. It's from here that David gets his idea of the Anunnaki, those who from heaven to earth came. Stitchin interprets the Sumerian tablets to say that a race of extraterrestrials called the Anunnaki came to earth from a tenth planet called Nibiru. This is when Pluto was still considered a planet. It might technically be the ninth planet today. David is open to various possibilities of their origins, including the Draco star system. Wherever they're from, the Anunnaki engineered the human race into its present form in order to work as gold miners for them. David contends that these Anunnaki are the reptilian race often mentioned in UFO lore. They are the ones who have been interbreeding with humanity and running the show for thousands of years. In addition to being extraterrestrial, David also contends they are interdimensional, controlling the world from the lower fourth dimension. It's clear that David is communicating with researchers who are just incredibly fringe. Looking into this actually reminds me of what a wild time the early noughties were in the alternative arena. On a couple of occasions, I attended the Nexus magazine conference, where a very erudite presentation on 9-11 could be sandwiched between one on the royal bloodline of Jesus and another on the ancient cities of Mars. I might be wrong, but I'm not sure that would happen today. I think there's been more of a filtering out between the different levels of conspiracy, we could say, where centrist geopolitical analysis doesn't mix with more fringe topics as much. Back then, it was all mixed in together. I'll play a clip of ancient world historian Dr. David Miano giving a mainstream opinion on Zechariah Stitchin's translations. Well, Zechariah Stitchin was... I believe he comes from, he was, uh, lived in Palestine, then, then later Israel, uh, then moved to New York. But I think he got an economics degree in London uh, and then became the head of a, a, a shipping company. So he's not like a, a trained sumerologist. He, he, he didn't actually professionally study uh, any of the stuff he's talking about in his books. 
but you know, he was amateur who's interested in the subject and I think that that's great. You know, as far as his uh, Sumerian, he taught himself. But when you teach yourself, okay, sometimes you don't always know what you're supposed to study, okay? So personally, looking at his translations and things like that, I think he kind of did a half-assed job of, of teaching himself because he doesn't take certain things into account that you would want to take into account when you're studying Sumerian. Um, for example, we actually have dictionaries from ancient Mesopotamia. The ancient Mesopotamian scribes created dictionaries. Now, they have all kinds of lexical lists. That, that, that's just sometimes groupings of common words in their language. But some of them uh, have an inventory of the word meanings, right? And it tells you in the languages that they used what the words meant. And he doesn't seem to avail himself of that information when he makes his translations. Like, for example, uh, when he translated the word Anunnaki, right? Now, what did I, I told you that the word means of royal seed, okay? But he translates it to mean from heaven to earth came, right? Breaking down Anunnaki into components. And basically, I think he just broke them into components, uh, opened up a Sumerian dictionary and then looked for those words, not really understanding the grammar of words or anything like that. So Anu, I think he says, uh, means the heaven, right? Which is the god Anu, you know, who represents the sky. And Ki is the, the word for earth, representing the earth. Um, and then Na, he interprets as coming to come. So uh, heaven came to earth, something like that. Uh, but he's just like breaking it up into parts based on just whatever, you know, he wanted. And then looking up the individual words in the dictionary and then saying it means that without understanding how it was formed or even understanding that the word Anunnaki isn't the original word, that Anunnaki is just an Akkadian translation of Anuna, and it's Anuna that he's supposed to be looking at. Anunnaki actually isn't, isn't Sumerian at all. It's Akkadian. Anuna is Sumerian. But um, yeah, so and Sitchin's word meanings and translations of Sumerian and Mesopotamian words are not consistent with the Mesopotamian bilingual dictionaries produced by Akkadian scribes. The Akkadian scribes are saying, here's a, Sumer here's a word, what it means in Sumerian, and here's an Akkadian uh, word for it, and so on. He doesn't use that. If he talks about a word meaning whatever in Sumerian, and it never shows up in that language with that meaning, then he's probably wrong. In other words, he gives meaning sometimes to words uh, not in the case of Anunnaki, but sometimes it gives meanings to words that aren't even uh, a meaning that you can find in any of the dictionaries, right? So that's why I would say he's a bit untrustworthy in that regard. I certainly don't mean to present Dr. Miano as a solid, irrefutable source. I also looked at his presentations on ancient Egypt, in particular on how they were able to carve vases out of granite, which I think is one of the greatest mysteries of the ancient world. His defense of the orthodox narrative only convinced me further of the impossibility of such feats. So everyone has their biases. David Icke, however, comes across as being almost entirely uncritical of alternative narratives. And when he is critical, it's only because his position is even more conspiratorial again. The biggest secret now moves through a history of the world from the perspective of anarchy control. 
I'm going to go out of the sequence of the text and into what I think is the sequence in which David came to believe in the reptilians. I think this is a far better way to make sense of his journey. Skipping ahead then to chapters 15 and 16, titled Satan's Children and Where Have All the Children Gone? So you know this is going to be pleasant. I've already explained how David's investigation of the MKUltra program had led him to conclude that what we could call satanic rituals take place at the upper echelons of society. He comes to think that political paedophilia is incredibly widespread. You could say just the normal way of operating. As always, he has some very good reasons for doing so. I'm going to play some clips from three different documentaries demonstrating the truth of this in different locations. Let's first look at the Dutroux affair in Belgium, where the arrest of child murderer Mark Dutroux opened up credible accusations of an organised paedophile network stretching into Belgium high society. I'll play a clip from the BBC's 2002 documentary, Belgium's X-Files. In 1996, this woman came forward to tell the Belgian authorities she'd spent her childhood years as the victim of a paedophile network. She described a world of organized sexual abuse, torture, and even murder. It was terrible. You didn't believe your eyes. And I didn't believe that humans could do that. She talked of violent child sex orgies with politicians, judges, and influential businessmen, a Belgian underworld in which the establishment has refused to believe. A campaign followed to discredit her evidence, but now in an exclusive interview, the policeman assigned to investigate her claims has broken his silence. He says the inquiry was blocked because it threatened to reveal too much. I'm convinced that she has been a victim, that's for sure. Regina Louf was one of the first to come forward. She said that as a child, she'd been abused for many years in a paedophile network involving Nihul and Dutroux. I remember Jean-Michel Nihul as a very cruel man. He abused children in, in a very sadistic way. She says that at the age of 12, she was taken with other children to sex parties. And, she told investigators, Dutroux was there working for Nihul. Dutroux was a boy who brought uh, drugs, cocaine and something like that to these parties who brought some girls or watched girls on these parties. Neil, he, he was a sort of party beast <laughs> and the truth was more on the side. Nihul denies he's ever met Regina Louf, but her story's never changed. Nihul, she said, was one of those who organized the parties and invited the cream of Belgian society, judges, politicians and influential businessmen, in order to compromise them. It was big business. Yeah. And it was very well organized, too. There's a lot of money going on there and a lot of blackmail also. They had a lot of parties. They filmed it even. So yes, yes, it exists. I know it sounds crazy. And I know that there is a big taboo 
on everything like that. But it exists, you know. Regina Luf's story was horrific, but her account of a violent paedophile underworld was by now reinforced by new witnesses, some of whom also named influential people. The investigation began. The witnesses' identities were protected. Each was given a code name beginning with X. Regina was X1. They went up to X9. Their testimonies became known as Belgium's X-Files. The documentary goes on to address the incompetence that plagued every step of the investigation and the unlikely deaths of over 20 witnesses. I think it's beyond reasonable doubt that the Belgian state was covering up a paedophile network, and presumably still does. Let's now cross the Atlantic and look at the Franklin Boys Home scandal in Nebraska. This clip comes from the 1993 documentary, Conspiracy of Silence. A Republican from the Midwest, Lawrence E. King, is serving a 15-year prison sentence for a multi-million dollar fraud. But financial crime is only half the story. This is the true story of Lawrence King. It is the story of an evil at the heart of America, of a cover-up at the highest level. One man is attempting to uncover the full story. John DeCamp is among the most highly decorated Vietnam veterans. A former Republican state senator in Lincoln, Nebraska, he is now a lawyer fighting the legacy of Lawrence King's evil network. It's a web of intrigue that starts in our holy of holies, Boys Town, Nebraska, one of the most respected institutions in the United States, and spreads out like a spider web to Washington, D.C., right up to the steps of the nation's capital, the steps of the White House, involves some of the most respected and powerful and richest businessmen in this United States of America. And the centerpiece of the entire web is the use of children for sex and drug dealing and drug couriers, the compromising of politicians, the compromising of businessmen, but worst of all, the corruption of key institutions of government that have the duty and responsibility to make sure these things never happen. Every victim witness who stepped forward in any way or even was a potential witness that somebody heard about has either been killed, put in jail under some theory or other, terrified or run out of the state, discredited. Every perpetrator Every perpetrator, even the convicted ones, have been treated as conquering heroes. Obviously, the FBI was protecting something a lot more significant than a bunch of old pedophiles having improper relations with little boys. They were protecting something a lot more significant than a bunch of drug peddlers. They were protecting, in my opinion, they were protecting some very prominent politicians some very powerful and wealthy individuals associated with those politicians and the political system up to and including the highest uh, political people in this entire country. Finally, 
Let's listen to a Channel 4 news piece on the Kinkora Boys' Home in Northern Ireland. My name is Richard Kerr, and I'm 53, and I believe my first time being trafficked to England was on February of 1977. Richard Kerr has suffered for over 30 years in silence, blocking out the horrors of his past at the hands of what he describes as very powerful people. As a teenager, he was introduced to the world of Westminster. He says he was trafficked from Northern Ireland and that this picture was taken by one of his abusers. I was used as a boy toy. Uh, I was an object, a sexual object. Rumours of an alleged paedophile ring in the top echelons of society have been circulating for years. But for the first time, Richard's account of what happened to him as a boy links three locations. Dolphin Square, a luxury complex popular with MPs and civil servants. Kinkora Boys Home in Belfast, where boys were systematically abused. And Elm Guesthouse, a former gay brothel where young children are also said to have been molested. We brought Richard back to England from America, along with his counsellor, to revisit his past. His memories were vivid and distressing. I'm sorry. A cottage industry of conspiracy theories has built up around this story, but Richard insists a VIP paedophile ring did exist, and it's time for the truth to be told. They were men who had control and power over others. They were politicians, you believe? Some, some I do. His story starts in Belfast in the 1970s at the now notorious Kinkora Boys' Home. He was placed in care from the age of five and sent to Kinkora at 14, where he was abused. There, he claims he and two other boys were hand-picked to be trafficked to London and sexually abused by further men. Both of them, he says, have since taken their own lives. In 1981, three senior staff at Kinkora were convicted of abusing 11 boys. There's been two judge-led inquiries, but allegations of a high-level cover-up continue. Despite claims that abuse in Kinkora was connected to England, the Home Secretary, Theresa May, has so far ruled out including it in the official child abuse inquiry. Right now, when they're not willing to bring Kinkora into Westminster, that just tells that the message that sends to me is that there's, that there's some kind of cover-up, and there has been. It's claimed British security services knew about the crimes in Belfast but did nothing to stop them, using the knowledge to blackmail and extract intelligence from influential men. In 1975, as the troubles were taking hold, a young army intelligence officer called Brian Gemmell was working undercover and tried to blow the whistle. We brought Richard to meet him for the first time. You must be Richard. Yeah, I'm Brian Richard. It's good to meet you. Come on in. Let's talk. Come on in. Brian says he put in an official report about King Cora to a senior MI5 officer, but to his astonishment, he claims he was ordered to stop digging and forget about it. That's the thing that hits me. That if I'd really pushed the thing through in 75, 76, you could have been rescued. I'm sorry. 
Thank you, thank you for that. Uh, I've been in a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and uh, I have survival guilt. Guilt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it, it's uh, it's a calling. I I believe it's a calling, yeah. and uh, I'm not here. This is a selfish, less selfish of myself. I'm not here to think of me. Right. I get peace from that. Yes. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. But it's hard to heal without the truth, and Brian now believes to establish that Kinkora must be added to the UK inquiry. Why do you think it should be? I think um, two words, Richard Carr. I think Richard's transporting over to the United Kingdom mainland to be abused rather than just being abused in Northern Ireland speaks volumes. It ties the two together. Here's a Concorda boy that knows what goes on in Dolphin Square. Do you think there are still efforts to try and cover up? I do. You may think I'm labouring the point here, playing three similar examples. What I'm trying to do is just give a little sense of what it must have been like for David Icke when he was confronted by dozens and dozens of people, not just in documentaries, but in real life, all telling similar tales. He seems to be unfortunately correct that paedophilia exists in the upper echelons of society, receives political protection, and is used for blackmail purposes. But David doesn't stop there. He comes to believe two extraordinary things. Firstly, that this high society paedophilia is all really about satanic rituals, and secondly, that it's not confined to high society at all. David repeats ex-FBI agent Ted Gunderson's claim that there are approximately 3.75 million practicing Satanists in the USA. They perform between 50 and 60,000 human sacrifices a year. To put those numbers in context, at the time The Biggest Secret went to print, that would mean 1.3% of Americans were practicing Satanists sacrificing 1.5% of the children born in any given year. With that ratio, I calculate Satanists would have to assemble in groups of at least 63 people to stand a chance of being involved in even one human sacrifice a year. I think this is patently absurd. The idea that millions of people are engaged in a conspiracy of silence over their satanic child-sacrificing activities is borderline psychotic. David Icke describes Ted Gunderson as a man of 28 years' experience with the FBI, as if this adds to his credibility. During his time at the Bureau, Agent Gunderson was involved with the FBI's counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO. So, essentially, he spent his career arranging for the infiltration and disruption of subversive groups in defense of the established order. It could be argued that this is what he continued to do after his retirement, infiltrating conspiracy research and seeding ridiculous narratives. He is. For example, responsible for the claim that Osama bin Laden was actually a CIA agent codenamed Tim Osman, or the one about the State Department purchasing 30,000 guillotines for mass execution of Americans. It could further be argued that this continuity from Ted Gunderson is not a coincidence. Through Gunderson and others, David Icke buys into the narrative of what is now called the Satanic Panic. He cites the example of the McMartin Preschool, perhaps the most famous of all the Satanic Panic cases. I think it's entirely understandable that dozens or even hundreds of children reporting satanic ritual abuse seems like a slam dunk that it really must be going on. 
as if children would even be capable of making up such lurid stories. The very notion sounds ridiculous. I can then understand why David goes down this road into a massive satanic conspiracy. To explain how children can be pressured into fabricating such accounts, I'll play a clip from the 2008 documentary Witch Hunt. It follows the events in California's Kern County, where the same interview techniques employed in the McMartin case were being used to have children accuse their own parents of ritual abuse. The clip is of the children as adults, reconciled with their parents, explaining the way they were manipulated by social workers into making false allegations. In 1985, the sexual molestation allegations took a more sinister turn. The Sheriff's Department began investigating charges of satanic worship and human sacrifice. And you gotta realize how crazy this thing got. Here they are, digging up this land with a backhoe, doing infrared, looking for bodies. They didn't find anything. You know, it's one anything there. The Cummings and their children were still on the run, but they couldn't get far enough away from the new wave of frightening allegations. Investigators caught up with them at a motel hundreds of miles from Bakersfield. They suspected the Cummings were involved in satanic rituals. They knocked on the door, grabbed the kids. Didn't arrest us, just grabbed the kids in the middle of the night and left with them. There's nothing worse than you've got a kid clawing you. I had claw marks on my back because he didn't want to let go of me. And then you've got people with guns telling you to put him in a strange car. I, I refused. I, I, I was like, no, you do it. But yeah, he was screaming and clawing me as they pulled him away from me. It was, it was devastating. The Cummings were not alone. Many kids connected to the satanic cases were in protective custody, even though most of their parents were not yet under arrest. 28 children involved in the case are under the care of the county's Child Protective Services. The head of that division says he's confident the system is working properly and that parents are not being denied due process. We cannot hold people's children without going to court, without showing why we're holding their children, and without a judge agreeing that there is sufficient evidence that these, that these children would be in danger if they went back to the parents. By the time they picked our kids up and we got back to Bakersfield, the, the allegations had gotten real outlandish. That, you know, we started getting the... Uh, witchcraft and the Satanism police reports saying we'd murdered, you know, her nephew saying we'd murdered dogs and wolves and bears and, you know, just pretty much any anything in the animal kingdom was open for, you know, sacrifice, I guess. One youngster told sheriffs he saw Cummings stab his young son to death during a satanic ritual. The son is alive and in protective custody and Cummings has never been questioned or charged. You know, we live for our kids, you know, we we didn't go out at night and leave them with babysitters and things like that. I mean, that, that little boy was born, that was the happiest day of my life. There's, you know, what's left. All evidence was based on the victim's testimony, which reinforces prosecutors' statements that a child's testimony can convict. I think it shows you that the jury of our peers listen to the testimony of traumatized children and believe children. Children don't lie about things like this, and you can see it by the verdicts that they gave.
While the convicted were learning to adapt to their new lives in prison, the kids who had testified against them slowly began to admit what really happened behind closed doors with investigators. I remember telling them no for about four hours, and I, I was just tired. I just wanted to go home, so I said what they wanted me to say. They told them what they wanted me to tell them, you know. Well, they said that uh, if I don't say that something happened, that this terrible man who's done this to all these people is going to be doing it to more kids, and uh, that I needed to, to do that, you know. I needed to help them. That's just the way they asked the questions over and over and over until you finally just said what they wanted to say to hear, and they were done. They were happy with it. That's basically the only time I ever said anything had happened is uh, when I had to for them or they weren't going to leave me alone. They asked the same questions, and if I kept saying no, they said, you know, you got to tell us the truth, Victor. You know, you don't want to lose your parents, do you? You know, you don't want to, you know, something, something bad happened. Uh, they made me do it. So I was intimidated, a little scared. You know, we'd sit down first, they'd get the little puppets out with all the anatomically correct puppets and tell us what had happened. We're like, nothing, you know, and sit there. And gosh, they hated that. They hated when we said nothing happened. Eventually, we figured out, you know, and, oh, well, they did that, you know. And, oh, that sounds terrible, you know. Oh, made the people, the counselors happy, you know. All of a sudden, they're ecstatic because we showed them something that was awful with these puppets. They promised me that nobody would get in trouble or go to prison. When we call you to the stand, this is what you're going to say. You know, they'd ask me the same questions, and be like, yes, and no, and yes. You could tell it was like a Mad Lib story with all the kids, almost, almost the same. They didn't really change much up. I told, like, counselors and teachers and everybody, uh, a lot of authority figures, which didn't give me any help whatsoever. Since uh, John went to jail, I was always scared, you know, because I knew that I lied, and, and they told me to lie, and it wasn't something that I wanted to do. David's endorsement of the modern satanic ritual abuse narrative is supremely ironic. As in The Biggest Secret, he condemns the witch trials of a different age as being a coordinated plan to dispose of Europe's sensitives and psychics, restricting the availability of esoteric knowledge to the elite. He mentions King James I, who was so concerned about witches he offered a book on the subject. Later, however, King James came to see the whole thing had gotten out of hand, with mass executions taking place based upon the fanciful stories of children. In spite of what David Icke writes, I have to conclude that, had he been alive in the 1600s, he would have believed the children and been on the side of the witchfinder general. Moving on. David is encountering an endless stream of people reporting involvement in ritual abuse when some of them start talking about shapeshifting. So, let's get real bloody bizarre now. If you've never seen my stuff before, it's time to leave. <laughs> um, who are this non-human group or grouping behind these particular bloodlines and how do they interact? Um, I had to go through this, so everyone else should as well. Um, I, was, uh, I was minding my own business in the 1990s, and suddenly, uh, I don't know what is this, this, this force I picked up or picked me up, I don't know, 20 years ago, 
but it's like uh, opening and shutting doors and in, a, in a maze, and it says, okay, not down there, down there. Look at this. Okay, now look at that. And what tends to happen is a theme comes into my life, and suddenly things are coming at me in relation to that theme from every angle. From 2003 to now, it's been the nature of reality all the time. Just earlier to that, from the mid, just after mid-90s onwards, I kept coming across people who were telling me they'd seen, apparently, human people uh, turn into a reptilian form and then go back again in front of their eyes. And you think, okay, um, right, back burner with that one. But as the months and the years passed, these were coming at me all over the world. He writes about several of these encounters in The Biggest Secret. They include victims, therapists, a quite famous South African shaman, and a confidant of Princess Diana. Most substantially was his three-hour interview with a lady called Arizona Wilder. Here's a clip of that, where Miss Wilder explains her role in facilitating Illuminati rituals. You've conducted them in Europe and uh, the United States. Can we start with the United States? Uh, yes, um, I have seen at rituals, I have seen George Bush, um, I have seen um, Madeleine Albright, I have seen Henry Kissinger, um, I have seen uh, Ronald Reagan, um, and I have also, by the way, uh, seen his wife, Nancy Reagan. I have seen Hillary Clinton before I knew she was Hillary Clinton uh, at the time um, at these rituals. She is involved. Um, the other people that I have named and are as I have seen shapeshift into reptilians. Jay Rockefeller, um, and he shapeshifts. These people seem to all be connected to the Illuminati. Gerald Ford, I have seen shapeshift. Dr. Joseph Mengele, who took me around to these uh, rituals a lot of the time, uh, was also shapeshifter. There are people in, uh, in the European countries that I've seen um, shapeshift and, and be involved. The Queen there, I've seen uh, Princess Margaret there, I've seen Charles there, um, and they shapeshift. Uh, I have seen Tony Blair there, um, and he shapeshifts. They all have their quirks um, as, how, as to how they act, even in their reptilian form. What have you seen um, the royal family do, the queen, the queen mother, and uh, the other people you've seen in the rituals? What, what have you seen them do? I've seen all of them drink human blood and consume human flesh, and uh, they have their own um, goblets in which they have blood, and these, these goblets are encrusted with jewels. Um, and they also have their own daggers, and that, that the dagger goes into the goblet. Wear these robes, but they don't wear anything underneath the, the robes because 
what is going to happen, what the rituals are all about. They're going to shapeshift, and they can't have anything on under the robes. And there are, there are orgy kind of things that go on at the rituals also. And, uh, involving the, the royal family of Britain? Yes, involving the royal family of Britain and, and the sacrifice and the eating of, consuming the sacrifice, and they are involved in that. You've seen them do that? Yes, I have seen them do that. People in Britain, uh, listening to what you're saying, um, would obviously be staggered, I guess, anywhere in the world. But what would stagger them mostly is, um, in Britain, the Queen Mother has an image of being the nation's grand grandmother, the nice old lady and uh, good old Queen Mum, what a lovely lady. What's your experience of, of the Queen Mother? She is very cold in reality and she is very cruel. She obviously, from what I see, enjoys consuming human flesh. Uh, it's sickening. Do they go into a different state um, uh, in terms of age and strength and, and all these other attributes when they actually shapeshift? Yes, uh, the, the human body that they, that they choose to occupy or take when it was young, it ages. But when they take the reptilian form, they still, these reptilians live hundreds of years and so they have to have taken more than one human body to live in. Uh, there, a lot of them are much much older and I'm including the Queen Mother in this, older than than people think that that she is. She's been in more than one body, human form. And when the time comes, if it is time for her to go on, it has been chosen that she still has, I mean, it's known that she still has life or years to go. Again, she will be put into the body, the essence of her and the reptilian form will go, or the essence of her will go into another body that is also, has the ability to shapeshift into reptilian form. One of the, one of the pure reptilian human bloodlines? Yes. It's quite interesting to use the power of the internet to look up some of the people David Icke cites today. He says a Claire Reeves, president of US organization Mothers Against Sexual Abuse, informs him that at least 12 of her ritually abused clients had reported that the participants shapeshifted into reptilians. I attempted to contact Dr. Reeves for comment, but did not receive a reply. She is still working in child protection today although was described in a Canadian court as a fraudulent expert who got her degrees from unaccredited companies posing as universities online. So believe what you will. David also writes about being introduced to a Christine Fitzgerald, who he describes as a gifted healer and confidant of Princess Diana. Miss Fitzgerald confirmed that the royal family were indeed lizards. Outside of David's work, I can find no reference to her existence today. I hope you can follow the thread and see why bombarded with these cases, David Icke becomes convinced of the shape-shifting reptilian narrative. The challenge is to put yourself in his shoes. After hearing all these accounts, David now interprets ancient mythology in a different light, where stories about gods and dragons must obviously be referring to this reptilian race. 
This is also how he interprets modern films such as Rowdy Roddy Piper's They Live. I can understand this. If you become convinced the reptilians are real, then surely it must be what these myths and stories are referring to. To my own satisfaction then, and I hope maybe to yours, I feel I've come to understand how David arrived at this reptilian position, why it made sense to him, and why he arrives at it as the consequence of a series of rational choices, not madness, even if they're rational choices you or I wouldn't make. The further question this raises, though, is why did so many people approach David Icke during the 90s with tales of shapeshifting? This really is a mystery. It's not so much a mystery after the publication of The Biggest Secret. David has then seeded the narrative into popular culture, influencing the responses he might get. But what about before this? I could propose several reasons. The first would be that this narrative preceded David's publication of it and was already present in UFO circles. David inserted himself into environments where he was encountering people who were both familiar with shapeshifting and had mental health problems and or hypnotically induced false memories. As I mentioned, I explored, and continue to explore, the false memory narrative in a separate series. I'll just play one clip from that, of a lady who came to believe her memories of ritual abuse had been implanted. I'll then contrast this with a clip from David's interview of Arizona Wilder. Dr. Bennett Brown founded the Dissociative Disorders Unit one year ago, as part of Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center. Meet Pat. I'm 32, I'm married have two children by outward appearances she is normal but inside are dozens of different people where would pat be without this unit i wouldn't be alive uh chances are my children and husband wouldn't be alive either pat burgess was one of the first patients on the unit in 1986. she arrived after having been in a depression for three years following the difficult birth of her second son when a social worker diagnosed her with MPD, she sought help at Rush. These were the experts. Um, they were in a very well-respected teaching institution. I turned to that teaching institution for state-of-the-art medical care, cutting-edge medical care. I didn't turn to them for fringe therapy, some goofy, controversial crap. What do you hear her say? That the hurting is over. Dr. Braun often treated me like his star patient. Um, I would have to teach other residents and doctors and, and media people about multiple personality disorder. Who's there? Sarah. How old are you, Sarah? Four five. I was supposed to switch personalities for, for the camera. Who's this? Karen. Karen, you don't seem too happy. I'm not. Dr. Braun and I kind of rehearsed that a few times to make sure that it looked believable for, for the interviewer. I was supposed to talk about how if it wasn't for Dr. Braun, I wouldn't be alive. Where would Pat be without this unit? No, I wouldn't be alive. Uh, Patty says that Dr. Braun both pushed her to remember things that didn't occur and then believed her stories. After a year in the hospital, Patty traced the satanic history of her family back to the 17th century. 
Satanic cult practices have been passed down through the paternal side of the family. Dr. Braun asked me to write up something to do a presentation at his conference. It was supposed to be one of my alter personalities giving a history about the cult. The satanic activity has been genealogically traced to a southern Slavic region of Europe during the Middle Evil Ages when her forebears were the supreme monarchs of the blood royal. I believe that I was a satanic high priestess, that I was controlling a satanic cult in a nine-state region. Revealed was the history of multi I took it deadly serious. Satanic worship, torturous human sacrifice, cannibalism, and I think all reality and fantasy just blended together. Before I was drugged, I was hypnotized, and I was mentally ill. She also knew nothing of the but I was told that, you know, until I hit bottom, until I dug all of this stuff out, I would never get better and I would never have a chance for any kind of a future for my children. And he is Arizona Wilder. Well, Arizona, can we start at the beginning and, and uh, can you tell us the story of, of, of what's happened in your life from, from the very start? Um... Okay, what, what I can tell you is that um, be, before I started looking into my life, um, back in 1989, I, I was starting to have flashes of things, and my life was not what it, it seemed to be, which is why I started looking into it. And um, what I found out was that I had a lot of missing time. Um, and a whole lot of missing time um, as to what 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 had occurred in my life and when I started looking into what had happened in my life it, it was the only way that I at the time that I knew was to start going to see a therapist within a year um, I was talking about um, memories of being sexually abused by my father which was part of what was it was supposed to happen and um, I was talking then starting to talk about uh, mind control issues and um, I was talking about ritual abuse issues at the time and I didn't have the whole thing put together it's taken me years all these years it's taken approximately almost 10 years to put this together what has happened to me and in the process I have lost everything in that that I ever had in my life and anything I held dear in my life um, I was bred for this role that I fulfill and it was planned from before my birth and it was because of my the bloodline of my mother's family which comes down um, through Ireland but before that is it began in, in France there it was the through the Marquis de Stock which he came to Ireland and um, changed the name to Stack and um, then I was chosen and I from what 
uh, the birth was planned, my parents were forced to move down to this area for the reason that the High Council uh, is down here, which is, uh, there are six councils of 13 in this country, and the High Council is down here. We're talking the United States? The United States, yes. And so, from the time that I, that, that I was um, a baby, I was being um, abused and traumatized and on purpose for the mind control that, that they need uh, someone to go through to, to do whatever they say to be as just a puppet in, in, you know, that they can control every move and um, you don't remember, I didn't remember uh, a lot of, of, of things because I have, as a result of all of this uh, mind control, split off many parts that all hold memories, hold feelings, hold uh, uh, programs, hold uh, information, um, and I've been working very hard to pull all of that up. And uh, it's been a long, slow process for me because there don't seem to be a lot of people in the field that I um, only felt was the only way I could go was psychiatric and psychological. They don't seem to know what is really going on. And um, I believe that a lot of them are afraid of being sued should they suggest something. And so they cannot lead or suggest. And it's been a process of me having to trigger myself to remember um, and be around people that can help me with that that can't really be touched. Um, by the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. Without saying anything conclusive, I'm sure you will agree the comparison is hard to ignore. The second reason I can think of for David being approached with these accounts is that shapeshifting is in some sense a real phenomenon. It could be that in moments of extreme abuse, a small percentage of victims' minds go haywire and project demonic imagery onto the assailant. Alternatively, Perhaps the darkness of the assailant's soul manifests into an apparently physical form. I can't discount these kinds of possibilities. If you gaze into someone's eyes for a prolonged period, their face may very well start to morph. You might be seeing beyond the veil of matter into their soul, or it might be that the highly complex facial recognition software running in your brain has broken down. There are videos on YouTube that can instantaneously induce this effect. What I find impossible to accept is the kind of shape-shifting narrative David presents. Again, I think it is simply patently absurd that Princess Anne is going out opening charities all day, only to come home and relax on the sofa in reptilian form. It must have come as a shock to rugby player Mike Tindall when he married into the family. Or perhaps he's a reptilian too. Do his teammates know this? It just all leads to an ever-expanding circle. The fact that after the publication of The Biggest Secret, no one with any demonstrable connection to anyone David accuses of shapeshifting ever came forward to confirm it, just further refutes the idea, if you think it needed further refutation. A third possibility is that David Icke has himself become the victim of a deliberate intelligence operation, aimed at discrediting both his work 
and the wider conspiracy movement. Just in time for 9-11, too. Indeed, it seems Arizona Wilder ended up thinking exactly this. There's an article published in 2011 claiming to be from her, I can't confirm this, where now, going under the name of Jennifer Ann Keeley, she describes being kidnapped and worked over, given huge amounts of electric shock by unknown perpetrators, which resulted in hospitalization. I did not realize that I was being prepared, programmed for an interview with David Icke, a former sportscaster turned conspiracy publicist, in order to perpetuate the system's media lie and program. I've read other purported victims of MKUltra who believe David has been taken in by a mind-control narrative with the reptilians too. Arizona describes how individuals magically, in quotation marks, appeared in my life to connect me with David Icke. So perhaps the encounters David reports with people telling him about reptilians weren't so magical after all. Is the idea of intelligence agencies running psyops on David Icke just as absurd as the reptilians themselves? If you've listened to episode 5 of my Energy of Empire series, you'll recall how the US military employed psychological warfare in the Philippines. It was after the Second World War, when they were trying to retake the islands, but encountering resistance from the Hook rebels. Lieutenant Colonel Edward Lansdale developed a program to play on Filipino fears of vampires. His men would abduct and kill a Hook rebel, punch his neck and drain his blood, then leave him to be found. This was apparently successful in causing Hook rebels to flee a particular area. In Western culture, we're not afraid of vampires. Not really. If we find a corpse hung upside down with puncher marks on the neck, we think serial killer, not vampire. We are, however, susceptible to the mythology of Satanism, and increasingly over the past 70 years, aliens. I do have to wonder then, to what extent is this stuff a psyop aimed at controlling our population? It would be interesting if there were any evidence of intelligence agencies concocting a satanic narrative to that end. And as it happens, there is. The clip I'm about to play is from the documentary The Man Who Knew Too Much, about British military intelligence officer Colin Wallace. Mr Wallace, who has a very interesting story, is the third voice you'll hear, and is describing his work in 1970s Northern Ireland. On the 5th of August 1973, an article in the Belfast Sunday News reported that sheep had been sacrificed in a black magic ritual on Copeland Island Beach, northeast of Belfast. It was a front page headline in the Sunday News, which lots of people read. The story was that sheep had been ritually killed and mutilated. That was the story. And that it was, it was Satanists who had, um, who had done this. As a would-be anthropologist and undergraduate at the time, it tweaked my, uh, my, my interests and I began to pay attention as other news stories appeared in other local papers. The more I looked, the more I found, and I began to be really surprised at the degree to which this had been a newspaper, a local newspaper story in Northern Ireland. From August 1973, stories of witchcraft and black magic began to surface in many local newspapers. The first thing that I had to do was try and understand what um, witchcraft would look like, and we had no idea. So I bought a book on the subject. Then the whole idea of the sacrifice of animals or whatever it might have been 
we got uh, blood from the uh, cookhouse, from the army cookhouse, and we would scatter that over the uh, makeshift altars that were there. Um, some of that material then we left and um, it would be discovered by local people and then eventually uh, they would talk about it at the press. And gradually the story built up and built up over a, a period of months. This was um, a way of really getting the interest of the press, getting rumours going around and therefore doing the things that we really wanted to happen. The ritual sites were often located in old graveyards and abandoned properties. You have to remember that this was a time in Northern Ireland when all kinds of unusual things were happening. Assassinations were a very regular thing and some of them were particularly bloody and brutal. Torture, mutilation, using knives and blades and things like that. People were talking about ritual murders and all kinds of things. So. All of a sudden, all of the moral certainties no longer seem to be quite just as certain. Information policy sent fake readers' letters to the local press to help fan the rumours. Quite often, uh, on different subjects, we would write to uh, local newspapers uh, drawing attention to something or criticising something and then um, the newspaper would publish that. And it, would, it would usually be about a local issue and it was very much done at local level. But then we would pick up the publication of those letters and we would then circulate those letters to more to the national press to reflect what would be portrayed as local views. Don't forget that we're not just influencing the press. The press is only one way of influencing the public. We had to be able to influence all sorts of other people who were, um, you know, communicating with um, the, the, their, the public. And the churches then, in the 70s, had much more influence, of course, than they have today. And therefore, this involvement of witchcraft was quite important. The key thing we wanted the Protestant, uh, sorry, we wanted the clergy to do, I think, was just to try and go back to um, reject all types of violence and questionable behaviour. And whether that was drugs or witchcraft or terrorism, um, it was to say that these activities really have no place in the society that we were trying to create. And because at that stage, people's world was dominated by the fear of terrorism, um, we were directly linking a lot of these things together. It was important to look at evil, bad, and terrorism all within one package. They were particularly interested in getting at the Protestant population and getting them to believe in this stuff. They were trying to scare the bejesus out of the local population and to attach that fright to the terrible things that were going on, ergo the paramilitaries. That, I think, what the core job of what they were doing was. They were trying to discredit the paramilitaries. They were trying to associate them with bad things, drug dealing, dodgy financial dealings, etc., etc. We were just saying, look, the fact that the community has now sort of dissolved into this violence, which is becoming more and more sadistic in terms of sectarian assassinations, 
you know, where do you draw a halt as a community? I think it helped to bring home to people that th there was something going on in their community that really uh, was not good for them as a whole. That is a strange way of thinking because, you know, you are part of the army and the idea is that you are fighting a war. But you are saying the witchcraft campaign was about bringing a sense of morality back to the community. You wouldn't really have thought that the army would think about that. Uh, probably not, but I think, you see, it, it is a war, but it's not a conventional war. Terrorism is fundamentally a propaganda war that is backed up by armed conflict. So it was, um, it was just, I think, going back to say to people, you know, you have grown up, as I did, in Northern Ireland with a very strong belief in the community and in our own church, whatever that religion was. And surely we have drifted a long way from that as a result of the violence of the last five, six years. On the 8th of September 1973, the burnt and mutilated body of 10-year-old Brian McDermott was discovered by the River Lagan in Belfast. People began to speculate, was this a black magic killing? And it certainly contributed towards one of the threads in the, the rumours and fears that autumn, which was that Satanists were looking for children to abduct. Newspapers reported rumours that a boy or girl under seven would be sacrificed. The police actually issued statements saying they believed that the murder may have involved witchcraft. I was a little concerned for us at that stage, but bearing in mind that we were creating this concept, uh, at that point we stopped using uh, witchcraft as a, as a concept. But that was in September. And according to Richard Jenkins, the witchcraft scare continued all the way to the beginning of 1974. I think that's right. And one of the points we were making is that when you create a story, it gathers momentum over a period of time. And I think although we stopped doing things, there were lots of other stories and rumors going around. And there may also have been people you know, creating these things for fun, really, to, to do that. But we certainly stopped uh, after Brian Dermot's death. There's no doubt about that, I'm absolutely clear. But it may well be that the aftermath of that was still going on for a period of some time, um, even to the beginning of the following year. From early September to December 1973, there were more than 70 articles referring to black magic and witchcraft. By the beginning of the following year, the topic had almost completely vanished from the press. Thank you for listening. I hope this series has been a thought-provoking few hours so far. This really is the point I wanted to get to, and I'm not quite sure where I'll take it next. Although, I shall definitely be doing more on questions of conspiracy and, in all probability, David Icke too. If you're enjoying these podcasts and would like to support the production of more of them, there is both a subscription option and a donate button in the info box. Any amount is really helpful. You may also like my book, Contemplating Conspiracy, which takes a more philosophical and mythological angle on these kinds of questions. Thanks again.